0: Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute.
1: I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI.
0: Hey, Nike, as always, good to see you. And as our viewers know, uh, The Invisible Men is all about highlighting Black excellence and uh, examples of Black men who are doing some amazing work uh, that you might not be aware of, but we're trying to bring it to the forefront. And today, we have a true Renaissance man. Uh, We've got Charles
2: Love. Welcome, Charles. Well, thank you. Hopefully, I can live up to the honor, but I truly appreciate being here. (laughs)
0: Well, Charles, you know, you, I think you are, you know, kindred spirits in terms of your work in education. You're the executive director of Seeking Educational Excellence, you you will have to tell us about. You're an author of an upcoming book uh, called Race Crazy. You've got a radio show, the Charles Love uh, Show. You've got a podcast uh, coming up that uh, cut the bull uh, that actually you're doing with Will Riley, Dr. Will Riley, who was a guest on, on The Invisible Men. So you have a lot going on that we want to talk to you about. But before you get into the Charles Love of today, the person who's been able to do all these amazing things, tell us a little bit of just about your backstory, any defining moments that helped chart your path to who you've actually become
2: now? Well, I love talking about this as often as I can actually. Uh, it's funny that that's your first question because I think that I have a very similar background to a lot of black men growing up in America with some very interesting differences that were nuanced and I didn't notice when I was younger but I started to notice as I got over and I, and I look back and I realized that that's why I kind of reacted to them differently. And recently on the show, I had my brother on to talk about our childhood, and he was like, why? I'm like, it's pretty interesting, and you don't get it. So I grew up in Gary, Indiana, and we grew up poor, although I had to tell my mother and my brother that, because they didn't think we were, because it was not like, they felt poor meant uh, it, we're not going to have the likes for a couple of weeks. To deal with, I, I mean, that's a different level, abject poverty. But I'm like, you know, you didn't take many vacations. You didn't have a savings. You couldn't afford to send your ki- kids to college. You didn't have a new car. It's all these things. Just typical black America. Growing up in a majority black town. Had both parents at home. My mother was a housewife. My father worked in a mill. And um, so I had a t- similar background to most people. The differences were, and what what I found out later was interesting is, so my mom- grew up in Gary, segregated, and had never been outside of Gary. My father was born in Oklahoma, but grew up in East Chicago. And he graduated from an integrated school where he was about 30% of the population, 70% was white. So he grew up, even though he was older, with lots of white friends, he had no issues with race. So he would tell us that the way to, to live the light is hard work. You know, no one owes you anything, those traditional values, but also that yeah, there's people that are racist, but you can't worry about what you can't control. And many people can be good and can be bad. You need to judge people based on their actions. And what, what was so unique about us is my mom didn't really share those views, but because we had this dangerous word you can't say today, patriarchy. So it was, you know, my brother was born in the 60s, I was born in the early 70s, and it was different. So my mom was a housewife, so she didn't really share her opinion. So we heard what my father believed. But by the time we were 25 and 30, we started hearing these really radical things from my mom. And it was the first time we heard it. So it was interesting because I don't know, and I asked my brother and my mother this, what I would have been like had I been hearing that between seven and 12, Mm -hmm. instead of not hearing it until I was already grown and the foundation had been laid. So that's why I have kind of a unique experience. So I lived through a lot of the experience, you know, being in Gary uh, as a young adult, when it was considered the murder capital of the country. And um, so seeing those same things, like, you know, a lot of people, they look at, especially black conservatives and say, you don't have these experience. You didn't live in these neighborhoods. I didn't leave Gary until I was 38 years old. So <laughs> I was there pretty much my whole life. And then when I moved to Chicago for the first six years, I was there, I was in an all black neighborhood. So I lived the black experience. I just don't necessarily, you know, live in it in the sense that I take everything as wrapped in race. So that gives me a kind of unique perspective Publicly, so
0: How do you, how, do you, how does that compare to what you think some of your friends growing up in the same neighborhood? Well,
2: w- when I first noticed the difference, I don't know if it was that so much. I think a lot of it was two things. I always say the two biggest difference between my friends, because when we were young, we ran and played together. We had a lot of similar um, views and things of that nature. and. It was the early 70s, so a lot of my friends still had their fathers at home. So the ones who grew up with just their mothers, it wasn't like now where you were born into a single mother parent. It was a progression. So their father left or they got divorced or their father died. So by the time we were in junior high school or high school, then they were in a single parent household. And my, parent, my father was older, so he retired when I was in the sixth grade. My mom was a housewife, so they were both like literally in the house for the last six years I was in school. The other difference is my uh, paternal grandparents we would visit in the summer. And they lived in a north, uh, a small town in northern Texas, and it was a really small rural area with very few black people. So every summer, I saw white people. My father had this, this idea about people in general. And by the time I started high school, everybody was just different. Everybody was militant. Everybody was like, the white man is this. And I just hadn't lived that experience and hadn't seen that, even though we lived you know, four, four houses down. But they never got out, and I did. I mean... It, it, even if though it was just to go visit or to get some other experiences, they just never left Gary. So if that's all you see, then you have a very small scope of what the world is like.
0: Interesting. Interesting.
2: And so your,
0: so you're, and so, so fast forward then. So how did you then take this mindset into your academic experience and what you have now started to build or how you well,
2: I, I kind of came to that even differently. So I was your typical person. I'm worried about, you know, raising a family or, you know, paying bills. I'm not really paying attention to what's going on in politics or uh, the greater culture. But I started to hear some things that just simply didn't make sense. And it really the catalyst was Obama's election, but not in a way for most people. When he was elected, I was surprised. I was more like, I mean, it was, it was exciting in a sense that, wow, we, we knew this could happen at some point, but we didn't think it would happen now. But I looked at it like him being a Chicago guy. I worked in Chicago even though I lived in Northwest Indiana. It's like, it didn't seem like he had that much experience, but we'll see what happened. But through his first term, watching all the people who were my contemporaries, who weren't just like me paying attention to politics, become political scholars overnight because everything was like, no, no president has ever been treated this this bad before. I'm like, you know, like seven of them got shot. I mean, you know, let's let's keep this in context, right? Or no one's ever said this, it was just this, you know, Obama's being treated so poorly, and this is, uh, this is all about race. And because I had been, even though I wasn't following politics then, I was reading a lot of history in my 20s and, and paying attention to those kind of cycles, because you know what's repeating itself, what's not, what is just human nature. And so I started writing about how odd it is that we have these, you know, at the time, 35, 40-year-old people who uh, have these views But they're totally different from the life they're living. And so that's what I talk about. You know, I was talking about Woodson. uh, He was on the show last week and we were talking about, you know, the black community and how we approach the problem. So he was talking about the victim mentality. And I don't personally don't like to use the victim mentality, even though it fits for some, because I'm sure you two being successful black men have some people in your circle who are like this. And these are the people that I think hurt the black people, black uh, community the most, even though it's not intentional. They are successful black people. They went to, to, to the uh, best schools. They have great jobs. They live in a wonderful life. They have summer homes. They do all that. But they'll say stuff like, man, it's hard out here for black people. Black people are being this. The, the police are hunting us down. They're saying that, um, you know, there are no opportunities, but they're living so well. So you have to ask, I get why a poor person would think that. But why does this person think that they don't have a victim mentality? Right. They live in a wonderful life. They go to Martha's Vineyard every year. They believe that because of the power and the impact of the narrative that's being spun. You hear it enough times in the media or you watch enough movies that keep telling you this is the case. Then at some point, even though your life doesn't reflect that, you start to, to mimic it. So I say to my friends, so they'll, they'll give me this stuff and I'll say, well, when's the last time you were followed around a store or profile? Well, obviously, now they're in the 40s and 50s. So I'm like, Man, I can't remember a time, maybe 10 years ago. So, but you speak as if you're feeling this, this weight on your shoulders every day, like it's hard to live your life. And they don't even realize they're doing it. They just laugh. It's like, I didn't even realize that. You know, They, they, they worry about police shootings, but not the shootings in their neighborhood. And you'll say, how many shootings were in your neighborhood last week? You know, 86.
0: Well, there is this phenomenon that people uh, refer to call survivor's guilt, right? That if mm-hmm. you're a Black person right. who's done well academically financially you have a strong family you you live well you're able to vacation you you have lots of privilege far superior to many whites in the country and as a result but when you see a George Floyd there's this connection that you almost have to you feel that you have to uh, say that you're privy you know you're you're subject to these same same um, atrocities so yes. I mean th- that, that seems to be for a lot of or at least for some successful black people, it's a necessary part of their identity to preserve that element of victimhood.
2: Right, but what, what I always talk about is solutions because the only thing that really matters to me, we can have fun, we can talk about why we think things happen, but if we, if we think there's a problem, we want to solve it, let's get to the root of the problem and find out ways to solve it. But we don't do that. We talk about the actions that come from the root of the problem and never address the root of the problem. So I would say to that, and I get that, and I believe there's some degree of that. But I would say, if you believe that, so like I left Gary, and because it was the common thing. For those who weren't in the gangs or in the bad uh, areas or doing bad things, they, in high school, everybody just knew. It's like, man, I can't wait till I graduate so I can get out of here. College, military, whatever, I'm getting away from here, things are so bad. But I sat back, I was, so I, I spent 20 years in the restaurant industry, act, acting, came back to get my degree later and do all the finance and do all this stuff later. So I was managing restaurants, and about 2006 or seven, I was like, well, I know what the problem with Gary is. It's not the white man. It's not politicians. It's not any of that. It's that everybody who has a chance, who just has a, they may not even have that much education, but they have the gumption and the grit to get up and do something, they <laughs> leave. So the city's only left with the people who are failing. So if we don't go back, then that's going to be the problem. So I would not open a restaurant in Gary, right? And a friend of mine who's a, a, a Pediatrician, he and his wife went back and opened a practice in Gary. So I said, those are the things that are going to make the difference. So I get most upset at the middle class. When we say the Bernie Sanders wing, say we need higher taxes, or someone else say, well, you know, there's racism, we need the government to fix those ills. But at the same time, we can debate that political stuff and say whether that's true or not. I really don't care whether that's true. I think the bigger problem is all you people making between seventy-five and $300,000 a year who aren't dropping a dime or not just money, mentoring. You're not going back to school. You're not saying, hey, I'm a chef come and let me show you what, what it's like to not just fry fries in a McDonald's, but to actually create, or you're a painter or you're an investment banker, showing them the things that you can do because most of these people have never seen these opportunities. You have people in the South and West side of Chicago. who have never been to downtown for years. My mom grew up in Gary and she's 85 now and outside of like maybe three occasions where I had to push her, she's never left Gary. So if, if you grow up like that as a young black man, coming from a single mom and having all these other additional struggles that's been growing over the years, how is anything going to change if you leave them to their own device and say, I'm successful? And I say, man, I wish that you all would do a successful, if uh, Biden or Trump or whoever the president of the day has did more for you, I think you'd have a chance, but you're, you're kind of at a loss now, sorry. But we don't want to put the skin in. I had friends who are really successful and say, well, how do we help them? I'm willing to pay more taxes. But one, we've proven that just money alone is not enough. And you're doing it because that's the easy cop-out. You make plenty of money. So to drop an extra $5,000 in your tax bucket where you can't control where it goes won't do anything. So I need people, middle-class people, to put skin in the game, mentorships, donate money to organizations rather than government. And that's the true solution. But we don't want to do that.
1: You know, Ian, I think we have another case here where you did a great job of introducing Charles, but we forgot the title, Entrepreneur. You know, because it's, it's a true entrepreneur, uh, you know, who also, you know, made the effort to uh, build a business where others were not. So I, I Charles, I celebrate that. I want to just go back to your mom, because I'd love to hear how she views, you know, your evolution, your growth, and your leadership as as a voice for a, a philosophy. Is she is she moved at all in her position, or is no, she still?
2: It is so amazing and so awesome talking about mom because mom is just mom right it's so and she gets it to the point that she laughs at herself she knows that there's no deep logic in it but you can't I, I mean it's baked in i'm an octogenarian; it's not really going to change so i joke i talk about her a lot on the radio she listens to the show and she laughs but she's she's like one way i describe her i say she is in her views ted cruz but out of her mouth She's, you know, filling, filling the leftist political of the day. Maybe I wouldn't say ALC because she's got to be a black one. She's Maxine Waters. Okay. So she'll say stuff to me. But when you say politics, she's so ingrained in Democrat policy. So like Republicans are evil, evil racist white people. Right, but I so I don't t- talk party though. So I just say, what do you think about gay marriage, income taxes? What's the most that you should be taxed? All that kind of stuff. Then she sounds like a conservative. How are you going to take half of somebody's money? I don't care how much. I'm not worried about what somebody else may- makes. You shouldn't take half of somebody's money. The the funniest one I used the most because it made me laugh. She called me in a rant, in a tizzy, over uh, mail-in voting. Like it was crazy. Who is the genius that thought up of this? It's bad. Both sides cheap. Cheat. There's no way people should be in mail-in voting. I'm 80 years old. If I can go stand in line, they can stand in line. I'm totally 100% against mail-in voting. And I said, "You sure about that?" Because I know which side's pushing it. Even if it didn't I don't care who's pushing. It. I don't. I don't care who's pushing it. Nobody's moving me. Three days later, Michelle Obama does a PSA. So I called her. I said, uh, So, you know, remember we were talking about mail in voting the other day. And, you know, Michelle Obama just did a PSA. I want to know what you think. She's like, Well, I guess if Michelle says it's good, maybe it's not that bad so that's mom so she loves what i do she's like your show is really good that person was really interesting but still it'll be republicans are bad democrats are doing these great things i talked to her last night about because my show airs on sunday and usually she calls me out i'll talk to her after the show but i was in dc so i called her she's like oh yeah it was really good and we did kind of like a promo of the podcast and she said it was good but you had a guy on talking about policing and not wanting it sounded like he was against defending the police and i say yeah well she's like um oh, but I just want to know, Charles, what do these cops get this money from? And I said, what money? She said, the police officers, they're bailing like the guy and the white guy with the assault rifle. I said, Rittenhouse. Yeah. In Kenosha. She said, why are the cops bailing him out? I'm, Excuse me? She's like, yeah, I heard that the police were bailing him out. I said, People probably raise a go did a GoFundMe to raise money. But if the judge sets bail, you can go bail bail somebody else if you want. Anybody can go. What well, does that have to do with anything? Well, I just think the cops are just, you know, spreading money around and they're doing this and they're using your tax dollars to bail these white people out. I'm like, what stop listening to whatever it is you're listening to, besides my show. But yeah, so it's funny. It's like she gets it on some fronts, but she's never gonna change.
1: Right. I think you've just represented probably the relationship between a lot of sons and their moms in terms of that dialogue. That's fascinating in terms of the inner voice and the, and the, the vocalized voice for lack of a better, better phrase. Well, uh, Charles, we'd love to move the conversation to what we call our speed round okay. where I'm gonna to present to you uh, uh, two opposing views two opposing philosophies, or two individuals, and, and ask you to pick one and tell us why. So we'll start with free speech or free enterprise.
2: Ooh, free speech or free enterprise. Ooh, are they all this tight? Uh, I'm about to, yeah. to say free speech. And I would say that just off the top of my head, because can you have any other freedoms without it? Right. Because you can have free enterprise and I open a business and somebody can say you can you have to bake this cake or else or you can't do this or else or you must put women or blacks on your board or you must do this. So you can't really have one without the other. I'm going to go with speech.
1: Wonderful. And of course, you know, th- that question, it also speaks to the majesty of America, right? Where, where we get both, which is right. you know, awfully special. Uh, Malcolm or Martin? <laughs> Ooh, that's the tough. Are you talking
2: then or now? I, I got the Monday morning quarterback I get to look back Can I pick one of them and put them on the team now No I know who I'm going to pick and what I'm going to say Malcolm But mostly because The best for the black community then and now Would probably be an amalgamation Of the two but I pick Malcolm because Look at what we talk about now most Honest black men sit around and talk About how the family Structures were so important And so Malcolm would be able to speak to the Blacks who are struggling now better than Martin because Martin was, you know, g- highly educated. Martin grew up, you know, uh, with his family intact and, and Malcolm, you know, got bounced around foster homes. So, you know, they can't you know, he would come in today's words, he would come with the receipts. So I think today's black youth would dismiss Martin and they wouldn't just be able to dismiss Malcolm. So I'm say Malcolm.
1: Powerful, you know, Ian. someday we've got to pull the Malcolm Martin clips just by themselves and release that as a sh- as as an event because it's so powerful the intellect of our guests and how they look at that question. That was you get exciting. different you get different That's answers each fun. time. Oh, absolutely. Even if it's this, even if it's the same choice, it's a different reason, which is fascinating. We got one more, Charles. And that speaking of youth, uh, Jay Z or Kanye?
2: Hmm. Hmm. Am I trying to influence the use or am I trying to entertain? No, um, who this is my shot most conservative? I think this is a push, but I'm going to have to pick one. OK, I'm going to have to pick one. I guess I have to go with Kanye because at least he's talking about free speech. But um, there are some things that they both do that get under my skin and things that they both do that I like. One, I'll give Jay-Z one. Jay-Z recently said after the George Floyd thing when every, all the was on one side was like, yes, burn it all down. Whites are bad. He said, you got their attention. Now what? Mm. I was like, kudos, Jay-Z. He didn't know what the answer was. And he ended up going the wrong way. But at least he asked the question. Okay. What was the way that he went? What was the way that he went? They all, I mean, he still went with the, uh, the system thing. It's always the system. It's the easy, you know, it's the low-hanging fruit, but, you know, all right, it's so not going to fix anything.
0: Okay. All right. Well, there you go. All right. So let's talk about the <laughs> ants, the, the alternative to the system, Seeking Educational Excellence. What's, what is that organization all about?
2: Well, C was we'll started, what, quite simply, four, four years ago, I want to say three or four years ago. Uh, Kevin Jackson, former uh, Fox News contributor, started so I came on right after that. And he, he just wanted to say, hey, let's focus on STEM. We want to solve some problems. Let's focus on STEM and not all the social justice stuff. A simple thing anybody can get on board with, even if you disagree with the second half of social justice thing, you like STEM, STEM strong. But then the 1619 project came out and that flood came in and we started to push this stuff in, in, in the schools and it became so difficult because there's so many, you know, holes in the dam that you're trying to stop. So it became what's the best approach to push the original plan. So, I go to people, and as you can tell, I speak rather frankly, I speak in a way that everybody could just understand it's simple, just cut through the noise, we cut the board. So what I say to people is like, think of all the black people you know that are engineers, doctors, lawyers, PhDs, and all that kind of stuff. How many of them are unemployed? And I've been asking this question for two years, was, with a rare exception, everyone says none. So I said, so we know that's the case. Why are we focus so much on racism, which we all agree exists, when we can solve a lot of it. And just the cops also aren't shooting doctors and engineers and CPAs. Shouldn't we just make more doctors, engineers and CPAs? Won't that fix at least 70 percent of the problem right off the bat? Mm-hmm. And we do that by focusing on STEM. And I think that we're failing the kids and the education should be the, the, um, the hill we're all willing to die on. Ian and I spoke briefly a few weeks ago. I don't know if he remembers. And I was telling him a story about my son. So my son's in kindergarten. And they made this grand announcement that they were going to start teaching STEM at the youngest age, you know, starting with kindergartners and make it age appropriate. We were excited. And I started hearing the assignments and it was like women in STEM, because women are generally marginalized. It was empathy, this, that, the other. It was black, this, that, the other. So I called the teacher and asked what's going on. It's like, yeah, we want to make sure that we um, honor uh, all the kids' cultures. And I said, well, what is Sebastian's culture? They're like, well, we don't know. I said, well, how can you celebrate it and elevate it when you don't know what it is? It's like, if if you were doing this in homeroom, maybe, but you're doing it in STEM, teach them STEM. You want to help the black man who's marginalized, teach him STEM, right? That's what I want you to do. And they didn't get that.
0: Math. There's not a black way to do math,
2: right? right? Exactly. Well, I don't know. I heard two plus two equals four is racist now, though. So, so that's the kind of things we push back on. We want to, so what we're going to do is we take a, a several pronged approach. So we talk about from the original idea, but we go on to say, we want to be able to influence school boards because they're the, the people who are able to push what they, like while you're talking 16, 19, the people who can make the decision of what goes into school are them. So maybe we should get more people to run for the school board or come up with our own with curriculum that's different so we can offer them. So when those teachers have, are being pushed, you must teach race theory. We want to fight that battle, obviously, you know, but while they're doing it, okay, you must teach theory, but you get 30% to pick your own tools. We want to give them tools. We want it to be civics and history that's separate from what they're already teaching. So, you know, they can teach that or you can go over here and we can give you a a wider understanding of the fuller, because like you talk about, we know, Ian, the 1619 Project, because we talk about it, we fight against it, that there's no positives in it. That's my biggest point. Everybody wants to talk about, should it be 1619 or 1620, you know, Plymouth versus Jamestown, or were they right about um, you know, the Revolutionary War and all the facts that they got wrong? How about the fact that there's no positives? You know, so, we need some positives in it.
0: Yep. So if someone wanted to bring Seeking Educational Excellence to their schools, h- how, how does that happen?
2: Well, unfortunately, since because of COVID, it's gonna be more virtual. We, do, we are working on a series of people to bring people to talk about education and what's important and the problems, but talk about what we do, but also talk about solutions and and, and the issues. So most conservatives, unfortunately think the school issue is school choice. I argue that you've let that ball roll too far. And now all the private schools are just as woke as the other schools. So you need to teach people to understand that there's, problems in discipline problems in, in, in the way we pay for school problems in the curriculum problem in critical thinking skills gender all that stuff so we shoot these videos that talk about these issues and how to deal with them and they'll be able to do those until we can bring some people out there but eventually we want to kind of go and do do some tours and go out and speak to people about what they can do in their communities to actually change things
0: got it and nike i know you went to uh talk to charles about his book
1: yeah. So as as I dug into the the articles, which are many, of Charles, I I, I saw notice of a, of an upcoming book um, with a with a very biting title and a great subtitle. Uh, I'll definitely be buying it. Charles, tell us more.
2: So race crazy. Uh, it's race crazy. Uh, BLM sixteen nineteen and the progressive racism movement. And I call it progressive racism because the actions and the way they view race is the same as the vicious vile racism of of the south only they change the skin color and they feel that the reason is different so they, they justify it so that white man felt blacks were inherently dumber than whites, so he was a bad racist we want to help certain groups of people and we want to pick and choose who are who are honorable and who are not. So we're the good type of racist, but what they do is still like no whites here, only blacks here, bean counting. So well, how is it any different? And I saw, but the catalyst for the beginning was this, after George Floyd died, obviously, uh, donations poured in, people started saying, I support Black Lives Matter without knowing what it was. And many of the people pushed back did what they could but they didn't dig deep enough so they focused on the nuclear family attacks which is great it's true that they did that and focus on the fact that they were saying that they wanted to defund the police and what that's going to lead in the neighborhoods and but they're leaving out what they really believe because i think there's a lot of caring white people who just like hey i just see something bad and i want to fix it but they don't really understand what they're supporting so in the book i highlight blm from their own words And say, this is what they say. They say, we are anti-capitalist. We are abolitionists. We believe that um, America is hurting people all over the world. And who are they to stop people from coming across the border? We don't want discipline in schools. We want no one under 23 to be in jail and no one over 65 to be in jail. So you put that stuff in front of people and they're like, whoa, I'm an investment banker. And I think some white people are racist. And I'm willing to give you $100,000 towards ending racism and police brutality. But I don't know if I want to end capitalism. Right. So they need to know that. And then for the 1619 portion of the book, I literally read all the essays about four times and wrote a chapter on each essay about why they're either factually wrong or why even if I give you your argument, which is the way I debate liberals, I don't say I don't call them names. It's just even if you're right, giving you your argument is what you're asking to do, going to make the situation better or worse. So I highlight how even if they're right about, you know, traffic being racism or racist or police being racist, how is Take it away, all the police go to make it better. How is this going to make it better? What we should be doing is this. So I do that so people can see the two next to each other and logically say, well, I agree with them, not Charles on the racism piece, but I agree with Charles on how we fix the racism
1: piece. So- Very interesting approach. That's wonderful. When's it coming out?
2: September 28th, but it is available for pre order now. And the, I, I found out that there are no rules saying that you can't buy five copies. Here I thought you only had to buy one, but no, think you can buy as many as you want, they said.
1: <laughs> the beauty of Very that. Good.
2: So Very but but
0: but Charles, why do these you know it, it seems so logical, you come out with these alternatives, you know, we just we shouldn't end capitalism. But Black Lives Matter raised what looks to be more than a hundred million dollars, right? So why do these ideas
2: seem to persist? Well, I don't think I think it's a guilt thing if the anti-racist because to me, you know, the C the CRT, the anti-racist, the BLM, they're all the same thing. They're just different flavors, different looks, but they are all saying the same thing. But I think that there was such a uh, uh, emotional reaction to it that people don't really think that. To be honest, I don't think people think that they're donating to their own end. I don't think the CEO of PepsiCo is saying, I'm gonna give this money to BLM because I don't like capitalism. Right. They're doing it because it's either going to buy their business some goodwill. Well, maybe actually, they won't throw a brick actually, at our window.
0: Right. And, it, and what's interesting, they they maybe believe in capitalism so much that they're thinking, all right, if I make this investment, it'll
2: insulate me. It'll insulate my business so I can then be productive. So in a right. very- I'm paying not to have a brick thrown through the window. In theory. Right. So some of them are that. But others are just like, man, if police are doing this, is why uh, in one of the episodes, uh, Nike asked about um um i think it was delano you asked him about imagery or action and i was always 100 he and i are simpatico i agree with everything but i was almost 100 percent that way but now i say it's 50 50 because the imagery. remember i talked about the middle class black who buys into x the imagery is what made people think that they have to do x because this is what happened so you you flash these images across the screen and people uh Uh, When I did a promo episode with Will, Will quoted a study where they asked liberals how many unarmed black men are killed every year by police. And as they went further left, the numbers went up. But the lowest of the liberals said a thousand, I think, in a year. Then it was five thousand, ten thousand. And some say more than ten thousand when the number was 17. So my point has always been how you see a problem. This is how I put it. How you see a problem would dictate the methods you'd use to fix it. So if I felt that most black people were okay, but 7% of them, 10% of them, 15% were struggling, we'll all get together and say, let's, how do we fix this 15%? Most people left, right or center would say, let's fix this 17%. But if I tell you that 90% of black people are being shot in the street, then you know what you're going to say. Even if you're normative, burn it all down. That's a logical response because it's 90%. So because we've been painting a picture where most of us are in that situation, we get people who say, well, you just got to do, we got to do extra. We got to do whatever. We got to throw the rules out the window. We have to be, you know, a progressive racist because that's the only way we can fix 90%. And then I go to people and my model, new model is I'm going to make some t-shirts that so We are the 97% because I ask people left, right, and center. Every show I go on, I ask also, I'll ask you all, what percentage of blacks commit violent crimes?
0: Oh, I'm, uh, I'm I'm with you. It's a single digit number.
2: 2.7%. Wow. So I don't stop comparing it to the fact that it's higher than whites because whites really low. The I, bottom I, line is that so that means that 97% of us have never committed a violent crime, but we want to tear down the system to help the 2.7%. And I'm only talking violent crime. So we're going to tear down the system to help in many cases. I'm not supposed to say this, but that's, I can say this on Cut the Bull because we're honest. Horrible people. People who have robbed, raped, beaten. Those are the people we're protecting. Why? Why can't we be like we were before? Racism is wrong. Uh, Police brutality is wrong fix those things but i'm not going to sit here and defend a guy who's beating people up and shooting at people but now you look at the high profile shootings most of them easily 90 percent of them were horrible human beings and we have to build statues for i'm supposed to uh, bow at the altar of george floyd now and act like he didn't do the things he was doing before then does that mean i wanted him shot no but i'm not going to bow at his statue I'm not going to George Floyd Park or Laquan McDowell, who's a menace. I'm not going to his park. No, it's. I mean, we they, we have to just use some common sense. Oh man! All right. Well, well, Charles.
0: So, talk to us about Daryl, sixteen-year-old Daryl, mm-hmm. who's living in the world that you're describing. Yep. Who Daryl might be in school in his neighborhood. He's hearing all of this stuff. Yeah. That. You know, the whole world is against him. How do we have Daryl not succumb to this belief (sighs) that, you know, what's the point? Because everyone is against me.
2: It's getting harder every day. I think that I, I don't know what the full answer is. Now, my answer changes every three months with new craziness. I think now I would have to say. I want to, if I could put nothing else in you, I would talk to you about critical thinking skills and believing in yourself and your common sense. You can understand what you see before you. What color is this? What does this look like? Which one of these look better? Um, if I tell you, if you know you like oranges better than grapes, if I keep telling you grape is the fruit of the day, you shouldn't just change your mind. So in that vein, when these upper middle-class blacks come to you and tell you your life is, is, is destined for failure because it's hard out here for a pimp, you have to ask yourself, but you drive a 2019 BMW. I've seen your house. So you have to say to yourself, because unfortunately, they're not going to tell you this. You got to say, I don't think your life is really that bad. So change the conversation. It's like, OK, just nod when they say that. Say, well, how do I do what you've done? So they don't go there and do it like they should. Ask the questions. When you see a successful black man or woman, ask them how they got there. Ask them. What can they do? Just agree with them. Just ignore the part on racism because you live it, you see what happens in poor communities. I would say, ask them what. So, what do you suggest I do if I want to be an engineer or doctor, if I want to live a different life, if I want to travel to Paris? What do I do? Because mm-hmm. at that point, you take the politics off the table and they're not going to give you a political answer there, I hope. Right. So, that's what I would guess. I would, I would try to push them in a way of analyzing what's around them. And understanding that things aren't black and white, and aren't as simple as they think, and they have to ask questions.
0: Yeah, and maybe preach what they have practiced in their own lives to be. I wish,
2: right? We would be so much better if they did that.
0: Yes. All right. Well, Mr. Charles Love, thank you very much for being our guest on the Invisible Men. Uh, for any of our listeners who want to see past episodes, you can go to www dot invisible dot men and this is uh ian roe
1: and like you Phasers, charles i just want to say I'm, I'm just in one sentence really happy that your voice is present and you're an important very important part of the conversation so thank you for your work i truly appreciate it
2: ian always a pleasure give me I, a call <laughs> <laughs> call you out on air
0: yeah, all right exactly but i love it you would all right we're gonna we're gonna connect i love It's all good. It's all good. Charles, thanks for your work, man. It's very powerful.
2: I appreciate you. It's great. Thank Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yep. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.